0: Well, it is a joy to be gathered here together with you on this Good Friday as we remember the death of our Savior and the the payment that He made for us on that cross. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23 is going to be our Our text for us here tonight. And as we look at this passage here, we're going to see something that is just marvelous. Something that is incredible. What we're going to see here tonight is we're going to see divine providence on display. Divine providence. What is divine providence? I'm glad you asked. Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism defines it this way. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. Ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. Another way that we could say this is that God is in complete control of all things and He orders all things for His glory. All for His glory. You see, with God there is no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as fate. Things don't just happen randomly or by coincidence with God. But God is directing all things in the universe to his appointed end for them. He is in complete control. Complete control. But if we're to say that God is in complete control of all things, then how does man's free will play into all of this? Well, we must make sure that we hold this in balance. We have to hold it in balance. You see, some will go to the extreme of saying that since God is sovereign over all of the universe, then that takes our free will away, and all that we are is a bunch of little robots running around on earth doing whatever it is that His sovereign plan has pre-programmed for us to do. That's an extreme view. That isn't true. Then there's the other side, the other extreme position where God does not have complete control or knowledge of all things and man is able to choose independently of God. But that isn't true either. Man never works independently of God in anything never God is in control for example let me ask you this question who sent Joseph to Egypt in the book of Genesis in Genesis 45 who was it that sent Joseph to Egypt was it his brothers Was it the caravan of Ishmaelites who were passing by that his brothers sold him to? Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Listen to what Joseph says, because he tells us who sent him to Egypt. In Genesis 45 and verse 5, he says this, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, he's talking to his brothers here, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Joseph says this, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Who sent him there? Joseph tells us that God did. God was the one who sent him there. And yet we know that his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites and they took him to Egypt. This is called divine providence. Divine providence. You see, Joseph's brothers, they made the decision to sell him, and the Ishmaelites made the decision to buy him and then to take him to Egypt. But as Joseph said in Genesis 45.8, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God did. It wasn't by chance or randomness or fate or coincidence, but it was God's divine providence on display. And as we look at this passage before us in Luke chapter 23, we're going to see that what takes place in this chapter is not by chance, it's not by coincidence. But this is God's divine providence on display. And as we work our way through this passage, not in great details, but just giving an overview of it here for you tonight, we're going to see three instances in which divine providence is on display. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. Follow along as I read our passage for us. Luke 23 and verse 13. Luke tells us this, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. This is divine providence divine providence on display for us. And as we look at these verses here verses 13 through 25, we're going to see our first point here tonight, point number 1, God's providence in a trial. God's providence in a trial. Now if we were to look at the the different phases of Jesus' trial from when he was originally arrested, To when he went to the cross, there are essentially six different trials in which Jesus went through. From the arrest to the cross, there are six different trials throughout the night and in the early morning. Three of those trials were religious trials before the Jewish leaders. But since the Jews didn't have the authority to sentence someone to death, because only Rome could do that, they have to get the Romans involved. They've got to get Rome involved in this. And so there are three more civil trials in which Jesus has to go through one before Pilate, then one before Herod, and then another one again before Pilate. Three different trials, civil trials, before Rome. Because they have the authority to crucify and to put someone to death. And as we see here before us in verse 13, this is that final trial. The final trial before Pilate. This is the sixth trial. Jesus had come back from a trial before Herod in which Herod did not find him deserving of death. And now Jesus is standing here before Pilate. But notice in verse 13 that there are others that are with him. Notice what Luke tells us there in verse 13. He says, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the ruler. Who are they? They are the Jewish religious leaders. Notice who else is there with them. It says the people. You also have the people who are there with them. Who are they? Well, these are the Jewish people who were hailing Jesus as king a few days earlier when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and they were shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are the same people, the Jewish people. And Pilate has all of them now before him. John tells us it's about 6 a.m., 6 in the morning, is when this sixth trial is taking place. But you see, Pilate wasn't a Jew, Pilate wasn't Jewish. He was the governor of Judea who represented Rome. That was his job. That was his title. He was the governor. And really, his job as the governor was to make sure that there was peace in Jerusalem because he knew that if things got out of control, the word would get back to Caesar and he would lose his job. It wouldn't go well for Pilate. So Pilate, this man, is the governor. He just wants peace in Jerusalem. That's his goal. That's what he's after. He wants to make sure that there is peace here in this land. But he has this angry mob in front of him who want Jesus dead. They want him dead. But Pilate has continued to find no fault in Jesus. He finds no fault. In fact, look back at verse 4 in Luke 23. Notice what it says there. Pilate says there, it says, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate says, "I, I don't find anything wrong with this man. You are claiming that this man is deserving of death, and I find nothing wrong with him. He's an innocent man. That verse there, verse 4, is the first trial before Pilate where he finds no fault in Jesus. Then notice what it says in verse 7. In verse 7, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at this time. Herod just so happened to be in Jerusalem at this time because he was there celebrating the Passover. Herod, who had jurisdiction over Galilee. And Pilate finds out that Jesus is a man from Galilee and he says, Oh, well I know who the ruler of that jurisdiction is. Why don't you go and see him? Because I don't find anything wrong with you. Send him to Herod. And off he goes. But Herod doesn't find any guilt in Jesus that's deserving of death. And so instead of condemning Jesus to death, he treats Jesus with contempt and mocks Jesus and puts a robe on him. Mocking him for being a king. Mocks him. And then he sends him back to Pilate. We see this in verse 11. He sends him back to Pilate. Then in verse 14, Pilate says again that he finds no guilt in this man. Jesus then arrives back at Pilate after Pilate has already sent him over to Herod. Herod then sends him back to Pilate. And here he is standing in front of Pilate again. And Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with this man. There's no guilt in him. In fact, if you were to put all the Gospels together, you would see that Pilate says six different times that he finds no fault in Jesus. Six different times. Pilate, even according to Matthew, has his wife telling him that Jesus was innocent. His wife sends him word. She suffers greatly in a dream the night before, and she sends word to Pilate, and she tells Pilate, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. He's righteous, he is innocent. Have nothing to do with him. Pilate has done everything that he could to pronounce Jesus as innocent. Jesus was not leading a revolt. He was not a threat to Caesar. He was an innocent man. But the pressure is on. The pressure is on. Pilate has this crowd of Jewish leaders and Jewish people in front of him who want Jesus dead. So Pilate tries another tactic. Another tactic he has. Look at verse 16. Notice what it says there in verse 16. He says, therefore I will punish him and release him. What he's doing here is essentially trying to satisfy the Jews. Fine, I'll satisfy you by torturing Jesus and then I'll just release him. But I find nothing wrong with this man. He's innocent. But... That wasn't going to satisfy this angry mob. So Pilate tries another tactic to release Jesus as a prisoner to the Jews. You see, he was obligated at the Passover once a year to release a prisoner to the Jews. It's essentially to make them happy. To have this interaction between the two of them. He would release a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner, over to the Jewish, the, the Jewish people. And Pilate has this prisoner named Barabbas. Who was in prison for insurrection and murder. And he thinks that these angry Jews would rather have Jesus than Barabbas. So he says, Fine, I'm obligated to release a prisoner to you. Why don't you take Jesus? You can have him. In fact, notice in verse 20 it says Pilate wanting to release Jesus. Pilate is just wanting to get this innocent man off of his hands. Get him out of here. He's not guilty. He's not deserving of death. In fact, Pilate even tries a third time. In verse 22, notice what it says in verse 22. After, in verse 21, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, he's trying to get Jesus off of his hands. He says, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding of death. He is innocent. Pilate keeps insisting that Jesus is innocent and that he finds no guilt demanding of the death of Jesus. And so he tries again To tell them that he will just punish Jesus and release him. Notice he says that there at the end of verse 22. Therefore I will punish him and release him. Look, I'll just torture the guy and then I'll release him to you. But I find nothing in this man that's deserving of death. He's an innocent man. But let me ask you. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he come to this earth? He came to die for our sins. He came to die for our sins. He came to be the sacrifice for sinners like you and I. In fact, listen to Mark 10.45. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach His disciples that He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. What does Peter do after Jesus pronounces this to His disciples, after He teaches them that? What does Peter do? Peter comes up and does what? He rebukes Him. Huh. Not you, Jesus. mm You're not going to die and rise again three days later. Not you. In fact, Matthew tells us that Peter said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What does Jesus say? Those famous words. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. You see, it was God's providential plan that was being accomplished in that trial on that Friday. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins. He came to make the payment for our sins that we couldn't make. And although Pilate and Herod saw no guilt in Jesus, it was God's providence that was being worked out. This was God's eternal plan that was coming to fruition. Notice in verse 24 what it says there. In verse 24, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Their demand be granted. Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, but God's plan was being accomplished. Then Pilate released Barabbas and delivered Jesus over to be scourged. John's account gives us more details of what happened. When Pilate gave Jesus over at this time, they then took Jesus and they beat him and they mocked him and they put a crown of thorns on his head. And after the beating, Pilate came out to the Jews again, and he said that he finds no fault in Jesus. None whatsoever. Pilate then even brings Jesus out before the crowd, all bloodied and wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns. And he says to the crowd, behold the man. Essentially saying to the mob, here he is. Are you satisfied? We tortured him. Are you satisfied now? But they just kept yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate then brings Jesus back inside. He brings him back inside and he says this. Listen to this. In John 19.10, says this. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Why would Jesus not speak to him? Because he was like a lamb led to slaughter. Silent lamb led to slaughter. You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus then answers him and he says, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. What is he saying here? Pilate thought he was in charge. Who was in charge? Pilate wasn't. God was in charge. This was divine providence. God was in absolute control of the entire situation. In fact, one commentator says, like everyone else involved in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Pilate did not have control over what was happening, but God was in absolute sovereign control. This is divine providence. As the Westminster Catechism says about God's providence, this is God governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. It's all for His own glory. He's ordering all of this for His own glory. Pilate wanted to release Jesus Herod saw nothing deserving of death. Pilate's wife was even telling Pilate to have nothing to do with Jesus. But God's plan was for Jesus to go to a cross. This was divine providence. And so that's God's divine providence in a trial. Let's look at our second point, point number two, what we'll call God's providence with a traveler. God's providence with a traveler. Look at Luke 23 and verse 26. When they led him, Jesus, away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, who is the they that were leading Jesus away. Who is this? Pilate's given him over, right? At this time, Pilate's given him over, and they are then leading him away. Who is the they that Luke is talking about here? Well, this would have been the Jewish religious leaders, along with the crowd and the Roman soldiers who would have been put in charge of the crucifixion. And as they lead Jesus outside of the city to Golgotha, or the place of the skull, or Calvary, which comes from the Latin, in comes walking a man from Cyrene named Simon. Jesus is carrying his cross, and as he's leaving the city there, in comes a man from Cyrene named Simon. Who is this man, Simon? Well... Obviously, he's from Cyrene. Cyrene is located on the the northern part of the coast of Africa in modern-day Libya. And Simon, being a Jew, was coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He was there to come into the city so that he could celebrate the Passover. And at this moment in time, he just happens to be coming into the city from the country. He's most likely entering the city as Jesus is walking out of the city, carrying the cross, and just happened to be there at the exact same time. Was it a coincidence? No. This is divine providence. This is divine providence. And as he's walking into the city and Jesus is leaving with the cross, the Roman soldiers seize him so that he could help bear the cross with Jesus. You see, in those days, it was the custom for anyone being crucified to carry their own cross out to the place where they were being crucified. Most scholars believe that it was just the the crossbeam that they would put on their shoulders and they would have to bear that and they would have to walk that out of the city and go to the place where they were being crucified. But no Roman soldier would ever help the victim carry their own cross. Crucifixions to the Romans was humiliating. They wouldn't crucify Roman citizens. They wouldn't even... Touch their cross as they're bearing it. Struggling. Think about this. Jesus has just been beaten. Whipped. The crown of thorns put on His head. Spit on. Mocked. All of that has already taken place. And then they put the cross on His back and have Him walk it out of the city to the place where He's going to be crucified. But no Roman soldier would ever help Carry that cross. So they randomly pick a man who just happens to be coming into the city at that time. Random? No. Divine what? Providence. Divine providence. This wasn't random. This wasn't a coincidence. This is divine providence. In fact, Mark tells us a little bit more about this man, Simon. Turn back to Mark chapter 15 with me. Hold your finger in Luke 23 and go back to Mark 15. Mark gives us a few more details of this account as Jesus is mocked. And in Mark 15, in verse 21, it says this. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Mark now gives us a few more details about Simon, who this man is. Notice that Mark tells us that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Mark's gospel was written to Gentile believers and specifically to those who were in Rome. That's who Mark's gospel is written to. Gentile believers, specifically those who were in Rome. Mark is writing through Peter. Peter's, this is Peter's gospel here. The gospel of Mark. Mark gives us these details about Simon being the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is that important? Turn over to Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. This is Paul's final greeting to the Romans as he comes to the end of his letter to the Romans. And in Romans 16... Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Paul says this, Romans 16, 13. He says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Who is this man, Rufus? This is Simon's son. Simon's son, the man who bore the cross with Jesus. His son is in the church at Rome, which means he is saved. Rufus is a believer in Christ. He's a a member of the church there at Rome. Also his mother as well, who is Simon's wife who was so close with Paul that she became like a mother to him. Paul was close with this family here. How was it that Simon's son, Rufus, came to know Christ? Because his father met Christ on that Good Friday. When Jesus was walking out of the city to die as the sacrifice for sinners like him, Rufus, became a believer because his father, Simon, met Jesus. Was it a coincidence that Simon just happened to be walking into the city that day? No. This is what? Divine providence. This is divine providence. Eventually, the gospel made its way back to Cyrene, where Simon was from, and a church has started there. That church then became a sending church where missionaries were sent out to preach the gospel. In fact, in Acts 11.20, it says this, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Men from Cyrene, where Simon was from. They go to Antioch and they begin preaching the gospel there. In fact, one of their men, Lucius, of Cyrene he became a pastor in the church at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries God used that church at Cyrene in a great way to spread the gospel and it started with a man who was walking into the city just happened to be walking into the city at the same time that Jesus is walking out. Was this a coincidence? What happened on this Good Friday? Was that a coincidence? No, it wasn't coincidence. What is this? Divine providence. This is divine providence. And so that is God's providence In a trial and God's providence with a traveler. Let's look at our third and final point here tonight. God's providence on a tree. Turn back to Luke 23 with me. And we're going to look at God's providence on a tree. Luke 23. And look at verse 33. Notice what it says there. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals... One on the right and the other on the left. Now, go down to verse 44. And look at what it says there in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, notice what he says, certainly this man was innocent. He was innocent. Notice, this this centurion proclaims and declares that Jesus was innocent. That word innocent there in the Greek is the word dikaios and it means righteous or innocent. It's the same exact word that Pilate's wife used to describe Jesus. Have nothing to do with that man. He's a righteous man. He is an innocent man. It's the exact same word that the centurion uses here. He's an innocent man. And that's what Pilate was trying to say all along, right? He's an innocent man. Jesus was innocent and not deserving of death. So why was Jesus there? Why was this innocent man hanging on a tree? Was it because of the Jews' anger and hatred for Jesus? Was it because... Barabbas was released and Jesus was taking his place? Was it because Pilate gave in to the pressures of the angry mob? Why was this innocent man hanging on a tree? Well, to find out, we have to turn over to Acts chapter 4. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 here, this is a prayer that's offered up by the believers there in Jerusalem after Peter and John had been arrested and then released. They were arrested for preaching in Jesus' name. Then they were told not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. They were released. Then they come back to the church. The believers that are all gathered there. And they begin to offer up a prayer. And notice what it says in verse 27. Acts chapter 4 and verse 27. The church prays this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. Who is that? It's the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers... And the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose, notice this, predestined to occur. Why was Jesus on that tree on that Good Friday? Because it was God's predetermined plan. Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people were all instruments being used by God to accomplish His perfect plan. That's all they were. Instruments in the hand of God. Being used to accomplish God's predetermined plan. Were they guilty for what they had done? Yes they were. They were guilty. They weren't robots. They were guilty of every decision they made and every action they took. Guilty. But what they were doing was accomplishing God's perfect plan of redemption. In fact, one commentator says, At the merely human level, Jesus' death was owing to a wicked king, an expedient governor, and brutal soldiers, and a bloodthirsty mob. But they were all acting in accord with a perfectly wise, just, and gracious providence. It was God's plan for His Son to go to a cross and die for sinners like you and I. Why was Jesus on that cross on that Good Friday? Because of divine Providence. Because of divine providence. And at the same time that Jesus was hanging on that cross there on Golgotha, the Jews were in the city at the temple sacrificing their Passover lambs. Coincidence? Divine providence divine providence. Some of you may be here tonight and you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about. You don't have a saving relationship with Him. Some of you are here tonight and if you were to die this night, you would spend eternity Separated from God in hell. I'm here to tell you, you're not here by chance. This is divine providence. And God wants you to hear the good news. The best news that anyone could ever hear. The message of the gospel. Because you see, your sin has separated you from a holy and righteous God. And because of that sin, if you were to die separated from Him, you would spend eternity in hell. Under the wrath of God. But Jesus came and He lived a perfect life. And then He willingly went to a cross to be the sacrifice for your sin. And He was buried. And He rose again on the third day which we'll be celebrating on Sunday where He conquered sin, and death. And He offers you tonight the free gift of eternal life. And if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you can have the free gift of eternal life. If you have not done that, I urge you to do that now. Call out to God. Beg for mercy. Ask Him to save you. Turn from your sin and trust in Him alone and He will save you because He's a saving God. You're not here tonight by coincidence. You're here tonight by divine providence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect plan. A plan that no one could ever think up, a plan that no one could ever accomplish. but it's a perfect plan because it's your plan that you have had from eternity past. A plan to save us from our sins. We thank you for divine providence that even when Pilate and Herod and Pilate's wife were saying that Jesus was innocent, they were still being used by You, to fulfill Your perfect plan. And we thank You for Jesus, Your Son, who came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins, to make the payment for us, a payment that none of us could pay. We thank You that as He hung there on that cross, that He bore Your wrath in our place, And Father, we know that all who turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone will never endure your wrath. But we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you for that perfect sacrifice on that Good Friday. And we thank you for divine providence that was playing out so that we could be saved from our sins. Help us to leave from this place here tonight remembering what you have done for us. It's all by your grace. It's all by your mercy. None of us deserve it. But we thank you for the payment that you made, for the work that you accomplished, for the perfect substitutionary atonement of your Son, who died on a cross for us. Help us to worship you, to serve you, to honor you, to praise you, to bring glory to your name and your name alone. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.